to look at Revelation chapter 2, we're going to take a look at a very familiar passage to most of us, but I pray that maybe you'll see it in a different light, maybe that you haven't seen it before in a long time. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to take a look at the letter that was written to the church of Ephesus. It's found in verses 1 through 7. We'll read a few verses, we'll pray, and then we'll ask the Lord to help us during our time together. Would you look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1? Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, for my name's sake is labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, if somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent, do the first works. Or else it will come to thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. I want to preach a very simple message tonight entitled, When Everything Looks All Right, But Everything Is All Wrong. Father, thank you for the time that we have together tonight. And Father, I pray that you would crowd out the distractions of the day. Lord, would you take away those distractions that would tend to take us away from attention to your word and what you would have us to see uh, really here tonight. Father, I pray that you would speak to every heart that is here in a very personal and a very practical way. Father, I pray that maybe you would show us maybe in just one thing in our life that needs to change. And then by your grace would we see victory. Thank you for what alone you can do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's in 1994, the name Aldrich Ames sent shockwaves across this country. You see, Aldrich Ames was a traitor. Alder James worked for the CIA in the Eastern Bloc of Europe, but all the while he was serving as a double spy for the Soviet Union. He sold out the identity of 90 of our CIA as secret operatives, 90 of those agents, their identity was delivered to the Soviet Union. All 90 of these operatives working in that region, all 90 of them were in prison. All 90 of them were beaten. In fact, 13 of them lost their lives as they were executed by the Soviet Union. When the U.S. News and World Report caught up with Aldrich Ames, they asked him the $64,000 question, why did you do what you did? He said, I wish I could say that I did it out of some moral outrage against the United States, but that's not true. I did it because of money, and I just can't get away from that end quote. The Soviet Union paid Aldrich James over $2.5 million in what was nicknamed as the most damaging spy case in the history of our country. You know, it, it may not be true that, that we might not walk out these doors and we may not rub shoulders with people who have committed a treason against Aldrich uh, or against the United States like Aldrich Ames. But yet it's my contention that there could be some good people maybe in this room tonight that you have committed a greater treason than Aldrich James ever thought about committing. And that's treason against God Almighty. And you may not have even realized it. In this passage of scripture, God is going to detail for us a deserter's description. Somebody leaves their first love. Where do, where do they go? What do they say? What's their cover? What's their camouflage? But yet, what's their character? Then we're going to see the deserter's danger. And my friend, every time you leave your first love, even in the slightest, there's an incredible danger for God's people. And then we're going to take a look at the deserter's deliverance. But you found yourself in, in a section of God's word in the book of Revelation in uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, where God is writing seven different letters to the seven different churches of Asia Minor, modern day uh, Turkey and Greece and in that area. And, and it's almost like God uses a form letter because he includes some of the same elements to all of these churches and the structure of these letters. He usually begins with a characteristic about himself that was foundational for that church to know. Something that was foundational about our God, about our Lord, that, that really lied at the heart of their problems. Something about God that they needed to be reminded of that would help them in their spiritual walk. 
And then he would give the church a commendation for things they were doing well. He would give the church a condemnation for things they were doing poorly. Then he would give them some counsel how to get what's wrong right. And then a special promise if they overcame. Paul, this letter to the church of Ephesus, that we know is pastored by Timothy, really is no different. Before God gets into any of the message to the church of Ephesus, there was a characteristic about himself that was foundational for the church of Ephesus to be reminded of, and I want you to see what that is. And we would do well to be reminded of that characteristic about God tonight. Would you look at Revelation chapter 2? Would you look at verse 1? Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now you see the word angel there. And a lot of times when you read angel in the Bible, you think of a heavenly servant uh, that was a minister for God. And really that's a lot of times what the Bible is talking about. But the Greek word that is used here is the word simply messenger. And so really this letter is directed to the messenger or to the bishop or to the shepherd of that flock, to the pastor of those people. And so really he's writing this to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. He says, right, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now you might think that that's a little bit awkward. What is he talking about there? Many scholars believe, and I agree with them, that the seven golden candlesticks is a picture or a representation of the churches. There were seven churches in Asia Minor. There were seven golden candlesticks. He says, I hold the stars in my right hand. There were seven shepherds or pastors that were pastoring and shepherding those flocks. And, and you know what he's saying? I hold you in my right hand. I walk in the midst of you. And here's the characteristic that God is reminding the church of Ephesus that really he wants to remind us tonight about himself. And it's the simple fact that God is omniscient. God knows everything. Look at verse 2. He explicitly states it. He says, I know thy word. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus saith the high and lofty one, the one that inhabiteth eternity. Have you ever stopped to think what it means to inhabit eternity? Well, it means that God is everywhere in time at the same time. God is everywhere in time at the same time. So you realize that right now, God is watching the day that I was born, April 25th, 1974, Weston's Women's Hospital, Springfield, Massachusetts. At the very same time, God could be watching me preach this message. At the very same time, God is watching the day that I'm going to die, that I'm going to go home, and I'm going to see my blessed Savior face to face, just as he is, and I can't wait to see him. How about you? God is not bound uh, by time or by space or, or by any of those limitations. You realize that right now, he could be watching the day that Adam and Eve took of that fruit and thereby sin entering the world and the curse of sin just falling upon uh, this creation. At the very same time, he could be watching the day that Jesus Christ yielded his life as a sacrifice for the atonement of all mankind. But at the very same time, he could be watching the day that one day Jesus is going to split through this sky on a white charger and reclaim this earth as his own and even so come quickly lord jesus and he's everywhere in time at the same time and here's the point that god is laying down before he gets into any of the message that who better to expose somebody who has left their first love than the only all-wise omniscient all-knowing god Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. God's eyes are on your computer screen. You know what, guys? He knows every website that you've been to in the last six months. He knows every website that you've been to this last year. Delete all the cookies. Take a sledgehammer. Smash your computer. You know what? God knows where you've been, and so do a whole lot of other people. Just ask Eric Snowden, the NSA. There's a whole lot of other people that know where you've been. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the evil and we can wear the mask and we can fool others but you know what god is saying you can't fool me and he looks right through our best defense and he looks right through this outer camouflage and he sees the character of our heart and we would do well to be reminded that we serve a god that is omniscient the by the psalmist said he knows what time i get up he knows what time i go to bed and he knows everything that happens in between he understandeth my thought, the scripture says, afar off. 
He hung the stars in space and he calls them all by name. He knows how many hairs are upon your head. That's not a big a deal for some of us as it is for others. But, but he knows you intimately better than you know yourself. And again, who better to expose someone who has left their first love than the only all-wise, omniscient, all-knowing God. And having laid that foundation, I want you to see the deserter's description. Would you look back at verse number 2 as he talks about this church of Ephesus. And he actually commends him for these things. But would you look at verse 2. It was all part of the camouflage. He says, I know thy works and thy labor. The word labor there has the idea to work to the point of exhaustion. To work to the point where you begin to perspire. Or you begin to empty the tank of all of your energy. Working to the point where there is literally nothing else to give. And especially a lot of the pastors in, the, in this room. Don't you feel that way a lot of times? And we got to be careful to recharge our batteries. And to take time to uh, really uh, to refresh and to recharge. But it's easy to work to the point of exhaustion. So in other words, first of all, number one. The people of the church of Ephesus, they were serving. Working to the point of exhaustion. Listen, if you're a Christian in the first century church of Ephesus, you'd be there every time the doors would be open. You'd be there every time they had a work day. You'd be there every time they had maybe soul winning or every time they had special meetings. You'd be there every time anything was going on, working and serving and laboring to the point of exhaustion. That would describe a lot of pastors and us in ministry here in this room. You know what? That's commendable, but I want you to understand it was all part of the camouflage. Would you look again at verse 2? He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. And you see the word patience there. And those of you that are students of the Bible, you know that that is the word uh, that has the sense of endurance. I'll tell you, these people were under incredible persecution. Remember, this is the city that some his early historians have said it was easier to find an idol in Ephesus than it was to find a man. And Paul came walking into this city. He said, that idol is wrong. That idol is wrong. Diana, she can't save it. That false goddess. And he was preaching the gospel and calling out their idols. And gospel preaching, if it's preached right, it always cuts across the grain of our culture. So many people started to turn from their idols to the true and living God that Paul was putting the idol makers out of business by gospel preaching. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could see that kind of revival in America? Oh, the idol makers didn't like that. They thought, if we didn't get rid of this guy named Paul, we're not going to be able to put food on our table. And so, you know what they did? They, they basically worked up the crowd. In Acts 19, Paul walks into a coliseum. A riot takes place. They seek to kill Paul. He escapes with his very life. Paul ministered in that city by the space of two to three years, warning everybody night and day with tears. And then Paul left. How would you like to be a Christian who stayed? I mean, these people are under incredible persecution. Paul had told the church yesterday, he was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He was held in the Mamertine prison in AD 66 or 67. We believe Paul was beheaded during that Neronian persecution. In every chapter of 2 Timothy, he is calling people out who are ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. They're ashamed of Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. And Paul didn't look at his imprisonment by the hands of Rome. It was the imprisonment that God allowed for his life. And, 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 and there were people that were ashamed and turning their back on God. And, 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 and really the day in which they were living, I tell you, it was, it was very, very difficult to be a Christian and to live out your faith. And see, it fleshed out in your everyday life. How would you like to be a Christian who stayed? They were serving, number two, they were steadfast in persecution. Look again at the scriptures in verse two. The Bible says, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. So number three, they were separating. They were separating from the world. They couldn't bear them, which were evil. They didn't want the world infiltrating their families. And so they were separating from the world. Continue reading in verse 2. Notice what it says here. And thou hast tried them, would say, their apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. They were separating, number two, from false teachers. Guys came rolling into Ephesus saying, hey, I'm an apostle. I have a word from the Lord. And they would separate uh, really from false teachers. Would you look at verse 6? God actually commends it for this. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds in the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were. We do know whatever they did, God hated it. 
A lot, a lot of folks believe that, and scholars believe that uh, uh, the Nicolaitans refers to Nicholas, who's one of the deacons that served the table in Acts 2 and in Acts 6. Either he went off into apostasy, or maybe some of his converts, they went off into apostasy. Uh, you know, so this could very well possibly be a reference to disobedient brothers. So listen, if you were a member of the first century church of Ephesus, man, you would have all the right standards. You'd have all the right dress standards. You'd have all the right music standards. And listen, I'm not kicking standards to the curb because we live in a day where people just have totally reacted against any kind of a standard. If you've got any kind of a standard, then you're a legalist. And I'm not kicking standards to the curb, but listen, if you were in this church, you'd have all the right music standards. You'd have all the right dress standards. You'd have all your ducks in a row as fundamentals. We have the right positions, do we not? But just as Vance Havner used to say, you can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically, but be as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. It's all on the outside. Man, they had all the right standards. They had all their ducks in a row. But listen, folks, it was all part of the camouflage. But look down again at verse 2. He says, and thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So there were guys came rolling into Ephesus saying, hey, I have a word from the Lord. I have seen the Lord. That's when Apostle was somebody who had, had physically seen the Lord. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how did they know that they were lying? The Bible says, thou hast tried them, would say their apostles and are not has found them liars. The word tried, there's a Greek word, parazo, and it means to test or to search or to examine for the express purpose to find fault or error in something. And, and, and so they probably took the scriptures as they had it. They matched it up to what these false apostles were saying. And they didn't agree. They were probably like the Berean Christians who searched the scriptures. Whether these things were so. And so you know what number four. They were searching the scriptures. Man if you were moving into Asia Minor. And the churches that are listed in chapter 2 and chapter 3, those seven churches, if you visited every one of them and you had to pick one of them for your home church membership and you visited all of them, man, you would have to come away thinking, man, if there's any church on fire, it's got to be this one. One of the churches, the Bible says that the seed of Satan was there. I've been in some churches just like that, you know. And, uh, but you would have to come away thinking if there's any church on fire, man, it's got to be this one. But ladies and gentlemen, to the church that had everything, they were missing the greatest thing. It was all part of the camouflage. You know what, folks? We're masters at wearing the mask, aren't we? We know how to walk in these doors and how to make it look like we got it all together, like we don't have a struggle in the world. And we're masters at wearing the mask. You know, all over the country on Sundays, moms get up to not only to get themselves ready, but to get the family ready. So mom stumbles into the bathroom, you know, five or six in the morning, you know, with a huge black and decker toolbox, puts that up on the counter. She opens it up and starts taking out all these power tools to get ready for church. You know what, guys, if you look recently, what our wives are using to get themselves ready for church, I remember walking through the bathroom one time. My wife had something plugged in. I was like, man, I don't want to touch that. That'll leave a mark. What is that? I don't even know what that is. You know what? And, you know, grid the city power going down all over the city. And, and, uh, and, and you know, some ladies had these little triggers, you know, that curl your eyelashes. I'm so glad that my wife doesn't have one of those. You know, the next time you get into a disagreement, boom, latch on with one of those things, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then they have these tweezers and they pluck out their eyebrows, you know. Ow, 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 ow. And then they take a pencil and write them back on. I don't get that, you know. <laughs> But to each his own, you know. So mom gets herself ready for church. And now she's getting the food ready for breakfast. Come on, Sally, got to get up. Johnny, uh, you know, let's go. We got to go to church. You know, the dog, you know, let's call him Butch. We had a dog growing up named Butch. And he was getting into the bacon and the eggs. And, you know, get out of the food. Come on, Sally, you're going to make us late. Johnny, let's go. You're going to make us late for church. Butch, get out of the bacon. And now mom starts to get a little bit flustered. She looks over at dad, the house is going crazy, and there's good old dad reading the newspaper. Know what I'm talking about? She says, hey, why don't you ever help me? You know, he kind of ducks down and 
Okay, you know, come on. Uh, you know, John, we got to go to church. Sally, let's go, honey. Butch, don't even think about that bacon. Hey, Johnny, come on. You need to put your church clothes on to go to church. Listen, Sally, you need shoes to go to church. You don't live in Kentucky. Sorry if you're from Kentucky. And, um, you know, and Butch, get out of the bacon. And then, bam, kicks the dog. And now dad starts getting a little bit flustered. And the dad so piously says, that's it. Get in the van. We're going to church. Everybody files into the van. Dad's ticked. Mom's torqued. Kid's been yelled at. Dog's been beaten 12 times. And then they pull onto the church parking lot. And all of a sudden, a miracle takes place. The Spirit of God descends down upon the van. You know, Dad gets out carrying his Bible, just walks inside, and someone says, hey, man, how's it going? Praise God, hallelujah, couldn't be better. And the kids are going, who is that man? And what are they doing with my father? <laughs> That's not the same dude that was sitting about three red lights back. They sing songs like, I surrender all, all to him I owe. Or how about this one? My Jesus, if ever I love thee, tis now. They greet the pastor at the back. Oh, wonderful message, pastor. And they walk out the doors, they get back in the van and they pull off the church parking lot, whatever came split, just as quick as it came, and cut the first red light. Dad's yelling at mom, mom's yelling at the kids, and the dog is cowering in fear under the kitchen table, waiting to be beat another 36 times. You know, I can tell you a story like that. Because it's happened to me. And I don't even have a dog. But it's happened to you. And we're masters at wearing the mask. And God says in the first few verses, you can put up your best defense, but God looks right through our camouflage and God sees our character. Notice in verse 4, he says, yes, you have all this great stuff. And in the church that had everything, they were missing the greatest thing. He said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. The word left there is the Greek word of theomy. It means to desert wrongfully. And that's where you get the phrase to desert deity. And in the grammar, it's an aorist and tense, which is punctiliar in action. Now, wasn't that a great help to you? <laughs> you say, well, that's, that's all Greek to me. Well, it's Greek to me too. But, you know, and really, I want you to understand this, that the language is bearing this out, that what he is saying, that it, when it's punctiliar in action, it means it's an event. It's an occasion. It was a specific point in time. There was a dot on the timeline. In other words, there was a point when these people, there were things that were more important to them than God. That's called idolatry. And it's alive and well that ain't which we were. God says, I look right through your camouflage and I see your character. You know, in the next few moments, would you afford me to deal with Maybe with some sins that we may not think of as sins. That we just kind of give a pass to. We just kind of acquiesce to. And we think, oh, come on, everybody struggles with that. Come on, it's not that big of a deal. And we may not think of it as sin, but you know what the reality is? The reality is it is sin, and we have left him just the same. What about the sin of called anxiety tonight? You know what anxiety is? It's a fear over the uncertainty of the future. Undoubtedly, as you came into these doors, maybe there, there are things that are on the horizon for you. Maybe financial challenges, maybe physical difficulties or sicknesses or diseases or maladies or, or, or maybe strained relationships or maybe you have a prodigal son or prodigal daughter. And you're just not sure how everything's going to shake out. You have a fear of the uncertainty of the future. Oh, come on, everyone struggles with that. You know, if you look at the most often taught Christian character trait in the Bible by precept or example in the New Testament, most often taught is love 50 times. Right behind it is humility, and we would probably guess that. But you know what the third most dominant Christian character trait taught in the Bible by precept or example in the New Testament? It's trusting in God in every one of your circumstances. And you know what the opposite of trusting in God in every one of your circumstances is? It's called anxiety. And Jesus had a lot to say about it. In Matthew chapter 6, he used the word six times. And that's the passage of scripture where he says, God knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. Or consider the lilies of the field. Solomon of all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
It's the same passage where, where he encourages them, saying, you can't change one uh, measure of your cubit of your stature by worrying about it. You know, another expression that was used in the Bible was fear not or don't be afraid. It appears 365 times in Scripture. And, and really, Paul picked up this admonition from our Lord. In Philippians 4, 6, he, he said, don't be anxious about anything. And Peter picked up this admonition in 1 Peter 5, 7. He said, cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it? Listen, if I were just to say, hey, listen, don't be anxious, I would just be trying to encourage you. But my friend, when Jesus says it, when Peter says it, when Paul says it, under inspiration of Scripture, it carries the force of a moral command. And God is saying, it's my will for your life that you don't be anxious. And when we become anxious over the uncertainty of the future, it is sin for two reasons. You know why? Number one, because when we give way to anxiety in a certain effect, we're saying, God... I really don't know that I can trust you to care for me in this particular situation. You know what, God? If I were you, I would have done this whole thing a lot differently. You know what, God? You must have fallen asleep at the wheel. Why don't you let me take over? And really, anxiety is an attack on the very character of God. God, I really don't know if I can trust you. But number two, it's sin because it's a lack of acceptance of God's providential leading in your life. Can you identify with me in chafing under God's providential leading for your life when it's different from your own agenda? You know what? It's sin. And you may not be out there doing all the big sins, whatever they are, and you might not be getting drunk, and you might not be in pornography, but you know what? Even you're anxious, you have left him just the same. What about worry? Oh, boy, come on, Ron. Everyone struggles with worry. Doesn't mean that it's right. Worry is a lot of time a synonym, really, to anxiety. Really, they're, they're, they're kissing cousins. We give way to this anxiety and we give way to fear or really this worry. Uh, usually, we, we usually associate worry with a long-term difficulty or a painful circumstance where there appears to be no resolution. These are the type of circumstances that keep you up at night, worrying about what to do, realizing all the while there is nothing you can do. We worry about our kids. Maybe you have an adult, a physically dependent adult child. You know, who's going to care for them when I'm gone? Maybe you have elderly parents. You know, you know who's going to care for them? We live halfway around the country. We worry about our kids. We worry about our, our bills or our debts or our finances. Again, strained relationships. You know, again, worry is sin because in 1 Peter 5, 7, the Bible says, cast your care upon him for he careth for you. You realize that's a present active in the grammar. And you know what God is saying? You are God's personal concern every second that ticks off the clock. Every second of every minute of every day, you are God's personal concern. And you don't have to worry because God is intimately involved in every detail of every situation of your life tonight, regardless of what you're facing. But also in Luke chapter 11, the Bible says that evil men, we as human, sinful, fallen fathers, we know how to give good gifts to our kids. It was several years ago, Abigail, not several, maybe a couple, she wanted a certain Lego set. Boy, if I could go back 20 years ago, forget investing in Apple, I'd invest in Lego. <laughs> I tell you, they're the number one toy maker in the world, and they're crushing it. I mean, these little plastic pieces, I mean, they're pennies on the dollar, you know, and, and they're just making so much money on these things. And some of the sets are $100, and you, you realize they have Legos for girls. They call them Lego friends, you know, and there's a certain Lego set that she wanted, you know. And, um, so as we did our Christmas shopping, she would ask the store clerk, you know, Target or wherever, hey, hey, do you have this set? Oh, no, we sold out of that last week. At another store, Toys R Us or whatever. And, hey, do you have this set? Oh, no, we, we just sold the last one today. We had, a, we had an outlet mall and they had a Lego store there. And they said, hey, we just called Lego and they're back ordered till next March. Well, Abigail came to the, slowly, the jarring realization, I'm not getting that set for Christmas. Little did I tell her that I had bought that set the pre, that summer and I had it stashed away in her closet. It was, I, I, I know I'm a terrible dad. We're going to all these stores, you know, and... And we weren't going to the stores to buy, to buy that particular thing. And, 
it's so in her mind, she thought, you know what, there's no way I'm going to get that, and that's fine, I really don't deserve anything, I'll be happy with whatever I get. But you could tell she was a little bit bummed, so needless to say, on Christmas Day, Chris and I were really excited, because we knew what we had. <laughs> and so uh, we got time to hand out the gifts, and we put Abigail's gifts on her lap, and I had the camera ready, you know, and, and, and you could tell she was a little bit bummed out, you know, realizing, I, I mean, I'm not going to get what I really wanted, and, and that was okay, but you could tell she was a little bit bummed out, and, and I tell you, when she tore through the gift wrap, Man, her face lit up like Christmas. Man, here was that set that nobody had that was back ordered till March, and nobody had now was sitting on her lap during Christmas Day. And you know what? If you're a dad in this room or a granddad, that's some of the best stuff we get to do, isn't it? Man, don't we love doing that? And if we as human fallen sinful men, we know how to do that for our kids, how much more is our Heavenly Father going to give us exactly what is best? And so many times God places this situation in our lap and we worry about it. And we don't understand what God is doing and we're tempted to say, God, what are you doing? Or God, why are you doing this? But God sees it through a different lens and a perspective, does he not? And we may see the gift wrap, and we don't know what's underneath, but God surely does. And he always gives us what is best for us. And we can trust him. But we look at the gift wrap. We don't know how it's all going to shake out. We give in to fear. We give in to worry. We give in to anxiety. And you know what? We leave him. We leave him. You know, and another one is, it's called frustration. You know what frustration is? Frustration is really worry involves fear. Frustration involves being mad at whoever or whatever is blocking our plans. Have you ever had to print out a very important document? I remember one time I was going to preach to the wilds of New England and I looked at my itinerary and I wasn't leaving for a couple hours. So I had, a, I had some extra time to do some things around the office. We live in Charlotte, North Carolina and and so a couple of minutes later, I opened up that itinerary and I had a half sheet fold and I opened it up. And you know what? I read the whole itinerary and, and I was looking at my connection time in Cincinnati. I was actually leaving Charlotte in like 50 minutes. Man, I run over to the printer and I'm trying to print out my boarding pass and the printer got a paper jam. And I'm like a human paper shredder just pulling stuff out. I close it up, I hit print and I kidding out, the printer ran out of ink. Needless to say, I didn't make that flight. You know, it's easy to get frustrated because that printer was blocking my plans of what I wanted to do. You get stuck in traffic and, and you're trying to get somewhere. They're blocking your plans of what you want to do. And you know what? You get frustrated. That's a nice little word for anger and it's sin. Oh, we kind of just give it a pass. Oh, everyone gets frustrated. Oh, come on. It's not that big of a deal. Listen, guys, have you ever had a week? at work or in the ministry where you just felt like you fought the Philistines all week long. <laughs> you know what I mean when I say that? Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And you just come home and you just want to decompress just for about an hour. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But there greets your sweet wife at the door and maybe the hot water heater went out. And as soon as you walk in, oh honey, the hot water heater went out. I don't know what's wrong. I need you to, to go look at it or go down to Home Depot and get whatever you need to fix it. Or maybe your kids run up to you and they vie for your attention. Or maybe you have a church member that to them they have an emergency. To you it's not an emergency at all. And, and it's such a very small thing and they just have blown it out of proportion. And, and it's blocking your plans of what you want to do. And that's why you yell at the kids. That's why you get short with your words with the wife. Or that's why you get impatient with the sheep that God has asked you to shepherd. And we get frustrated. And we leave him. We leave him. And in comes this, this worry, and in comes this anxiety, and in comes uh, really this frustration. You know, another one is discontentment. Discontentment. And maybe we, people gripe about what they have, about what they don't have. I remember after one service, a U.S. A Navy SEAL walked up to me. He put his finger right on my chest. He said, preacher, I just want what I deserve. I don't. 
man, because if I got what I deserve and you did, we'd be in hell, ultimately the lake of fire. God is so gracious here. We give way to this discontentment in our life. We cripe about what we have and maybe about what we don't have. And you know what the fact is? We leave him all over again. You know, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, 16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in, which in uh, continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. The phrase which in continuance were fashioned, it literally means the days which God has ordained. And the days which God has ordained not only refers to the length of your life, but it refers to every second of every minute of your life. And it's so encouraging to know that really God is in control and he is uh, really uh, involved in every intimate detail that is in your life. You know, when you're tempted to be frustrated, do you ever say, you ever pray this, God, this circumstance is part of your plan for my life today. Help me to respond in faith in a God-honoring way to your providential will. And then please give me wisdom to know how to address this situation that tends to frustrate me. <laughs> you ever pray that? I mean, I wish I did all the time. There are no events that in, uh, in your life that have not ultimately come to you through some invisible cause, although they came from the hand of God. And we give way to this discontentment. There are some examples of these difficult, unchanging circumstances we get discontented about. An unfulfilling or low-paying job. What about singleness, well into life or beyond? Or how about the inability to bear children? Man, that's tough. An unhappy marriage. Are you trapped in an unhappy marriage? They do some marriage counseling where the, the spouse is fantasized about their spouse dying so they can get out of this nightmare called marriage. physical disabilities, or maybe there's continual poor health. You know what? It's our response to these circumstances rather than the degree of their difficulty that determine whether or not we're discontent. Man, this is a huge, subtle sin that we give way to because we tolerate it without a second thought. It opens the door of our heart to other sins and it becomes all the more dangerous. Maybe there's a physical issue that you've had and you're tempted to be discontent about that. Maybe a disease or a physical limitation that you'll carry the rest of your life. You know, in Psalm 139, verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's wombs. You know what he's saying? When God so formed your inward parts, he so directed your DNA and your other biological factors that determine your physical makeup to the point where the psalmist said, God made me that way. You remember the man that was born blind? They said, who sinned, his mother or his father? Because surely somebody did something wrong for that guy to be born that way. And Jesus said, neither of them sinned. That man was born that way that he might show the glory of God. And I mean, think about all the physical challenges that would accompany with being born blind. Never being able to see your mother's face. You have to count how many steps it is to the door or how many steps it is to, to the next flight or to the next floor. And think about all the challenges and learning to read and, and to communicate. And this man carried that physical limitation maybe for 30 years until one day he met the master. He was touched by the hand of God and that blindness fell off him. And those that knew him and knew him intimately, they knew he was blind. But now that he could see, and you know what? Who got all the glory? with him maybe god has allowed a physical difficulty or maybe uh, some of those physical limitations in your life and it's a gift because when people see when the world sees people struggling and they see them in suffering and yet believers respond with a bedrock of peace that only comes by the grace of god they are seeing christ living in us and it's a glorious truth but they don't know how to articulate it they say you know what there's something different about that person and they're seeing christ living in us and there's an incredible power to that how many times have people been martyred and many have came to faith when they saw an unrecanting disciple of Christ yield his life and not recant and they thought something different about that guy. They were seeing Christ in us. I remember several years ago, I was so, so dis discouraged by something and I was preaching in Arizona, I was up in Flagstaff and after I preached, I went and sat down and Chris and I were just not between each other, but there were some outside things that were going on that were very, very difficult. 
tends to dominate your thinking and your mind. And I sat there and I was really, really d- discouraged. And the assistant pastor's daughter came in up to the bleachers as everyone was coming in the bleachers in the gym for an activity. And, and she was in crutches and she sat down next to me and she took one pant leg, folded it over her other. She only had one leg. Man, you should have seen the joy that exuded from this young lady. She had a head-turning joy. Somebody said, oh, hey, I forgot something. She goes, oh, oh, I'll go get that. Crabbing her crutches, stumbling out of the bleachers, going halfway across this huge campus to go serve other able-bodied people. Man, immediately I got up, I went on the hallway, I got on my knees and said, God, I've been so discontented, you've given me so much. I told that young lady, she's 16, I said, you preached a better message to me this week than I have ever could have preached to you guys. Thank you for your wonderful testimony. But we rob God of an incredible opportunity to impact the world and show him the practicality and the power of Christ living in us when we give way to discontentment. Well, I wish I had a different church. I wish I had different people in my church. I wish we didn't have that struggle. Or that guy over there, he doesn't have to deal with that. Why can't I have a church like him? We get so, we complain about what we have and what we don't have. Oh, then we give way to unthankfulness. Taking for granted all the spiritual and physical blessings that God has so freely bestowed upon us and failing to continually give thanks. Hey, could I ask you a question tonight? If you woke up, when you woke up today, if the only thing you had is what you praised God for yesterday, how much would you have today? Man, that's a cut check, isn't it? Man, at the end of a work day, do you ever say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving me the health and the skill and the ability today to, to, to provide for my family and to do my work? Do you ever come to the end of the day and say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for saving me from the power and the dominion of darkness and saving my soul and adopting me into your family. Now I have eternal life. Or is it just in a nominal way? As a student, do you ever say, God, thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving me the financial ability and the provisions that I can go to school to prepare myself for a future job? At a meal, is your thanks just simply routine or perfunctory, or are you just going through the motions? I remember one time, my mom, she burned the meal bad, I mean bad, she burned it bad. Dad came home, all the kids were sitting at the table, dad comes home, and and dad, and she puts it on the table. We didn't even know what it was, you know? And she put it on the table. And, 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 and dad bowed his head to pray. And we're all secretly praying, dear God, don't make me eat that. I don't even know what it is, you know? And, and, and my dad prayed, dear God, thanks for what we wound up with. <laughs> yeah, we all laughed. You know, being thankful, I'll tell you. It's the first step to apostasy in Romans chapter 1 when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. The Bible says neither were they thankful. Well, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 5, 18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Give thanks in all things, for all things. You know how to change your marriage? Find five ways to praise your wife. Every day, find five ways to praise your wife. Now, you may have to break out a defibrillator, resuscitator off the kitchen floor, but you know what? It'll be worth it. Hey, honey, thank you so much for the wonderful meal that you made. Eat, eat it out of the park, home run. Oh, honey, thanks for everything you do around the house or that you do for me. Being thankful. Being thankful for the folks in your church that maybe demand so much of your time, but it doesn't it seem like the people that we invest in the most are the ones that walk all over us? I don't know if you've ever felt that way. And even being thankful for them. Being grateful that we have an opportunity to stand in a place as preachers and proclaim the word of the living king. God is alive. He is active. He is advancing his kingdom. And 2016 is a great day to live. Being thankful what we have, what we don't have. I'll tell you, you know what another one is? I'm almost done. You know what another one is that really comes in and 
called impatience. Man, I got it on these waters. You know, preachers are people too. <laughs> Can we identify with that? You know what impatience is? It's a strong sense of annoyance that usually the unintentional faults of others, and it's usually expressed verbally in a way that tends to humiliate that other person. I tell you, if you've ever spent any time around Kristen or myself, I'm the typical evangelist. Hey, man, it's either right or wrong. It's black or white. If you don't like it, well, but that's what you get for making a bad choice. Now you got to live with it, right? Now, now I really do love people. I really do. And uh, my wife is the total opposite end of the pole, total kindness and graciousness and mercy. And I'm so glad that God put us the two together, and, and he's really used her in my life, and she keeps us from doing so many stupid things. And, but... But if you ever spend any time around us, or, or you see the trailer that we have out there, you know, it takes a couple hours to pack that up, to pack the book table up that we have out there. And, and then when I get to the church, another two or two and a half hours to undo all that, you know. And so I've got, a five, I've got five hours of work, and I haven't even left the parking lot on a travel day yet. So if we've got a six-hour trip, that's an 11-hour day. And on a travel day, I'm like, go, 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 put that over here, do that, do that, go there, do this. And you know what? And I just move at a quick pace. They make quick decisions. My wife moves at a glacial pace. <laughs> or so I think. And there's nothing wrong with her, it's me. And I'm like, do that, go here, do this. And she's over there and, and taking all the clothes out of the laundry and folding uh, all of our, uh, our washcloths ever so neatly. She's putting hospital corners on the bed. I'm like, just throw it in the dryer. We'll fold it when we get there. And then the devil's got her. And isn't it amazing how short of a fuse we have with people we love the most? Hey, can you identify with me there? Patience is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit. And, 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 and really, that, that's what love is. Love is patient, and love is kind. And again, Paul, he is exhorting us in the New Testament when he speaks about this patience in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called with all lowliness, meekness, and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. And you know what, guys? If I talked to your wife for five minutes, would she use those words, lowliness, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another in love? You know, you and I, slip, we slip in and out of impatience. But when we're impatient most of the time, that's when we're an irritable person. Are you upset with someone or something or some situation most of the time? If so, then you're an irritable person. And we need to learn to overlook uh, people's faults, not to condone sin by any stretch. Proverbs 19, 11, it's one's own glory to look over an offense and in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all things, a fervent charity, even among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. We had to respond like Christ in 1 Peter 2, 20, uh, 22. And, and when he was reviled, reviled not. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committeth himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know what, Ron? But you don't know what they've done to me. You know what? Did they ever take nails and put them in, there, in your hands? Did they ever take a spear and thrust it into your side? Consider him. When he suffered, he didn't threaten back. When he reviled, he reviled not again. You know what, Ron? It's too hard to walk a difficult, an extra mile down this difficult road with people that hurt me and people that irritate me and agitate me. I'm sure it's hard to walk the Calvary road. But our Lord willingly did that for you and for me. I'll tell you, you know, another one we give into is judgmentalism. Oh, I tell you, we see this all over the country. You know, within Christianity, there, there are a lot of opinions, whether it is car, politics, or sports. And we usually assume our opinion is right. Here's where we get in trouble. <laughs> if you don't do it like me, you can't possibly be doing it right. And so what happens is we raise our opinions to the level of Scripture. Now, now, I'm not talking about sin. Listen, when someone's lifestyle is out of line with the Scripture, we are clear to say that person is sinning. 
All right, so I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm not talking about sin. Listen, we can stand against open theism, which basically says God does not and cannot know the future. And we can stand against that. We can stand on substitution, substitutionary atonement. Some people try to say, oh, Jesus didn't die to, for your sins. He died to leave you an example to show you how to respond when you suffer. And you know what the fact is? Listen, Jesus was God that left the glories of heaven that came to this sin-sick earth, that took upon himself a form of a servant, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He took you, he took me, he threw us aside, and he took our place as the perfect Lamb of God. All of those feasts and all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were giving pictures of what the ultimate sacrifice would do for us and Jesus took our place it was the only way that we can be forgiven for Christ to become sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and we can stand on substitutionary atonement I'm not talking about doctrine or something I'm just talking about things that really at the end of the day do they really matter you know what we get judgmental about parenting well you know what I pray with my kids and that I discipline them. Oh, no, no, you don't do it like that. You know what? You, you, you discipline them first and then you pray with them. And if you don't do it in that order, you can't possibly be doing it right. And I'm thinking, praise God, they're shepherding the heart of the child at all. Both sides. Does it really matter? Well, if you don't do it like me, you can't be doing it right. Boy, I tell you, when I think of Facebook, I'm not telling you not right with God if you're on Facebook. And I'm on Facebook, but I tell you, and it's a wonderful tool at times, but I tell you, when I think of Facebook, I can't help but think of the pastoral epistles when it talks about women running from household to household being busybodies. <laughs> and I don't think I'm a miss here. You know, what happens is, oh, you know what? Uh, you know, do you see where they went on, on vacation? Or do you see uh, where, you know, why did they go there? Or how do they have money for that? Listen, if you live in Dearborn, Michigan, you better be driving a Ford because that's where the Ford plane is. And you live in Flint, you know what? Uh, you better be driving a GM because that's where the GM plant there is. You know, the Ford is the most spiritual car on the road. It'll shake the devil out of anybody, you know? And, uh, you know, but, but really, at the end of the day, does it matter? If you drive a Ford, and no, no. Well, you know, look what they do there. Look how they do this. And I'm not talking about sin. Just things that we can give deference on. Oh, and look at what they did there. And look at where they went on vacation. And how they have money for that. And they came home and they bought a Ford. And they're bearing all of these burdens, to be quite frank, God never meant for them to carry. And they begin to treat people differently in the church, across the aisle, and hold them at arm's length. You remember how when we're impatient most of the times, we're an irritable person? Listen, when you're judgmental most of the time, that's a critical spirit. They're not theoretical people, they're out there. They can find, a, they're a critical fault finder to everyone and everything, whether it's a church, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a car, whether it's a toaster, it doesn't matter. They're going to find something wrong with everything. It's the kind of people where every day there's always a crisis. Every day there's a crisis and the world's going to end. And they're just not happy unless the stars are aligned just right. It can be a critical fault finder to a spouse or maybe to the kids. Man, I can never live up to this expectation of perfection. And you know what? Here's the point that I'm making tonight. I believe the point that the scripture is making to him tonight is simply this that here's your unsaved neighbor and they are in the driveway and they look across the picket fence at you and your family and your house and you know what they see the anxiety and they see the fear and the worry they see the discontentment or the unthankfulness and they see the impatience or the anger and they see the irritability or the judgmentalism maybe even the recipient of it many times and they see the critical spirit and they say you know what if that's Christianity, I don't want any of it. And we may not out there getting drunk or in pornography or living in adultery, but we have left him just the same, have we not? Aren't sins of the spirit equally as damaging? You just kind of acquiesce to it. I mean, could, could you identify me in any of those? Are you breathing? Do you have a pulse? 
so many times we left him. And sometimes there's a dryness in our soul when we read the scriptures. We don't get anything out of it. And God seems a thousand miles away. You know what? We have left him. But quickly, my time is gone. Would you just look at verse 5? And notice what he says. Remember, therefore, from whence are fallen and repent and do the first works or else. Don't you think when the God of heaven says or else, we ought to listen. He says, or else I will come to thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Remember at the beginning of the message that the candlesticks were a picture, a representation of the church? And he's saying, listen, if you're going to wear the mask, if you're going to just acquiesce to these subtle sins in your life and tolerate them and cover them and just live with them, I'm going to remove my candlestick out of his place. You know what he's saying? I'm going to remove my testimony out of that place. I'm going to remove my power off of those places. I call it the Samson Syndrome. What happened to Samson? Delilah says, if you love me, tell me the secret. Well, if you braid my hair. She braids his hair, he falls asleep. Samson, the Philistines be upon me. They all come running in, he beats them up. And Delilah says, hey, you lied to me. Yeah, Samson should have had a conversation with Delilah at that point. If you really love me, tell me the secret of your power. Well, if you buy me with new robes. Well, she does that. Samson, the Philistines be upon me. He beats them all up. Well, if you really love me. I'm in the city of power if you cut my hair. By the way, what a thousand men could not take by force, one woman took by seduction. And man, men, we ought to guard our hearts. She cuts his hair, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. And scripture says he got up as before time. The power of God was gone. And they didn't even know it. He had operated in that fashion so long. It was the standard operating procedure, and he didn't even know it. And men, how many times do we allow the light of the scripture and the mirror of the law to reflect who we are and we just tolerate hidden sins or give way to a duplicitous lifestyle or we give way to different truth rather than what we're preaching but it's not a reality in our life and everything on the outside looks great and you know what, God looks right through our camouflage and you know what, for a lot of us the power is gone. It's an incredible danger when you leave your first love. If there's any day in which God's people need the power of God resting, it's the day in which we live. But notice the deserter's deliverance. And it's just like our Lord to give us a guide out, to show us how to make these things right. In verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent, do the first works. Number one, remember. In other words, deal specifically with your sin. In other words, just get honest. I tell you, evangelists, we spent all week long preaching and plowing on sin just to get to that point. You know what, God? I do get impatient. God, maybe there's anger or there's lust in my life. Or God, I've been so discontented about this. You know, Lord, I don't want these things in my life. And just take off the mask and get on it. Remember from whence we're fallen. Deal specifically with your sin. Look into the law or the mirror of the word. And let God show you who we are. Deal specifically with our sin. And you know what he says? He says, remember and repent. It's the word, Greek word metanoia. It means a change of mind. It's not you cleaning up your life. It's you coming to the point where you say, God, I've got some giants in my life and, and I can't beat them, but I know you can. I don't want this in my life. God, this is here in my life. And God, I can't beat them, but I need you. God, would you forgive me? Repent. Notice what he says, and do the first works. Number three, re Repeat. What are the first works? Remember the beginning of the message? Serving. Steadfast in persecution. Separating for the world, false teachers, disobedient brothers. Searching the scriptures. And somehow we think, you know what, God, if I do all these things, these A, B, and C, and D on the outside, you know, it's somehow you love me more. And you know what God is saying? He says, listen, you've got the cart in front of the ox. Listen, fall in love with me all over again. And when you do, and take off the mask and just be sincere and honest. And when you do, now go out and serve because now you see the power of God. Now go out and be steadfast in persecution because others will see Christ living in you. 
And now go out and separate or now go out and search the scriptures because now I'll show you things you never would have seen before. And you know what? The power comes back. And in most Baptist churches, people are saved, they're baptized, and that's about it. But it's time to have done with lesser things. Oh, man of God, rise up and have done with these lesser things. And remember, repent. Go out and repeat. And have the power of God on you. God doesn't want any respectable Christians. He wants real ones. Could it not be tonight through the preaching of his word, maybe he put the spirit of God, put his finger right on an issue in your heart tonight? And you can have the fullest blessing and the power of God on your life. Maybe you just need to come back to him. Maybe you left him and didn't even know it. He's always ready to forgive and abundantly pardon. The blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, 7, cleanseth us from all sin. It doesn't matter what you've done or how much it's been a habit in your life. God can forgive you and change you through the power of a resurrected Savior. You know what? Tonight, simply, would you just let God examine your heart? Would you just take off the mask? When everything looks all right, but everything is all wrong. Would you stand quietly as we sing?